2: Welcome into the Five Reasons Podcast. My name is Chris Weddingham, joined as always by Ethan Skolnick. We are not just an individual podcast, we are a network of Miami based sports podcasts. So check out our podcast on all the teams in South Florida. We've got the Miami Hurricanes, which we're about to talk about, five rings, and Josh Darrow is covering that. He's got Brad Kaya regularly coming on, breaking down the team from a schematic point of view, covering recruiting, covering the past as well. Check out five rings. On the Dolphins, we've got three yards per carry. And the fish tank on the Marlins, we have swings and misses on the heat. We have Miami Heat beat. And on the Panthers, we have Goldie on ice from Steve Goldstein, the play-by-play voice of the team. But today, we're kind of doing a comparison of College football in the state of Florida, how the University of Miami have lost four in a row as compared to UCF have won 22 in a row and are hoping to get in the college football playoff. But I feel like hope is all it's going to be, uh, given the way that the rankings have shaken out thus far. But joining us now to talk some Miami Hurricanes and where they've been the last four games is Vishnu Parasuraman, who is a consultant and editor of the Sebastian's Pub blog. You can check him out on Twitter, at VRP2003. Vishnu, appreciate the time? Yeah, no problem. In terms of these last four games, and frankly what's happened in the entirety of this season, we kind of know the problems for Miami, particularly from an offensive point of view, from a defensive point of view. I I don't have very many criticisms of it. Obviously special teams have been a disaster, but uh, when you look at this Miami season, where has it gone wrong in your in your view?
3: So I think it's more global than just the offense. Clearly, the last four games, I mean, the, the way he's treated, I think, both quarterbacks, there's a lot of focus on he being him Mark pulling Rick's. Perry. Yeah, Mark Greg, sorry, pulling uh, Perry against Virginia. But really, when he pulled Rozier against FIU, it was a popular move, but it was kind of weird because he had just played his best game, <laughs> and then he threw two passes and he pulled him, and we didn't see him again for four weeks. So it, it's been, I don't feel either quarterback really feels comfortable in their position, which is never a good thing. But I think you mentioned the special teams, which are terrible as well. Fumbled twice last week, can't punt um, at all. So I just feel like he's stretched too thin. And that's like more program level, uh, he being wrecked again, than just the offense. Often Offense is a symptom of it, but he's taken on too much responsibility
4: and he's kind of screwing up across the board a little bit. What do you think the plan for quarterback was? Before the season, was it always the intention to let Rozier go sort of as long as he could before you get Perry in there? Or do you think that some of the stuff that's happened off the field, and I think there's even more than has been reported, has affected the way that this has played out?
0: I think
3: it definitely affected it. First of all, I, I wonder if Perry is the starter if he wasn't suspended for the first game. And then I think he's still very cautious. He kind of waited till a safe spot in a home game to make that move. He could have done it against Toledo, for example, but it was a road game, so he let Roger play it. And Roger actually played well in that game. So I think he's I think overall the plan was to move to Perry, but I think that was kind of delayed by Perry's off field thing, which is what makes the decision against Virginia so perplexing. Because after you've already gone through the uh all right, we're switching quarterbacks and you've gone through that to just switch it back just made no sense at that
2: point. Do you think it's sort of and and this is something that college coaches do all the time to the frustration of many fans that he just doesn't know which quarterback that he actually prefers and that if it's actually a week-to-week thing at quarterback it's so atypical of the other you know in comparison to the other 21 positions on the field do you think that Mark Richt and frankly Miami fans like I don't know when I watch Rozier or Perry that I really know who's better or actually gives Miami a better chance to win and then we'll get to the whole play calling aspect of it because obviously plenty of fans are howling about that but do you know which of the Miami quarterbacks is better? It's
3: Perry right now. Oh, I think Rozier's broken, to be honest. That last game against Duke, I mean, he wasn't even really trying to throw. He seemed to increasingly, as this year has gone on, just not even try to go through progressions and just really tuck it and run at the first chance. And that's not how you run any offense. So I, I do think at this point it's Perry, but to your point, Perry's not exactly coming in and lighting the world on fire to the point where, like, I can't believe this guy wasn't playing. But the other aspect of this one's a redshirt senior, one's a redshirt freshman. If you're not sure, you play the younger player. The fact that we, that they played Rozier three games in a row for a majority of three games in a row at least and lost all of those games. I mean, we, there was nothing gained out of that. The offense was terrible in those games. So what was the point? At least with if Perry doing the exact same thing, you could argue he got some experience or you know these are things, lessons learned. And instead, he he was sitting on the bench now. You alluded to it. There might have been non-football reasons for that, but if we're talking about a football decision, I can't imagine if you're up in the air over who to play and you have a redshirt freshman and a redshirt senior, you play the senior. That doesn't make any sense.
4: What's fascinating about this is that I feel like all the teams down here are doing the same damn thing, uh, what you're talking about there. like We have a Dolphins situation where at this point, our guys on three yards per carry said it uh, today. They're like, why don't you just play David Fales at this point? Like, I, you know, like probably David Fails isn't very good, but at least find out, you know, if he can be a player for you in the future as maybe a backup instead of like running Brock Osweiler out there, like the Heat giving a use, highest usage rate on the team to a 36-year-old at this stage. Like, what sense does that make? And, and you're right with the Canes. Like, if you're not winning a national championship at this stage with Rozier, which you were not, okay, after you lost the game to LSU – that was clear. To me, that's the end of it. You go to the younger guy, you see what you have. If he's not the guy, then eventually you're going to go to Williams or you're going to go to somebody else. But I just don't get that. And I also feel there's a parallel here between the Dolphins and the Canes in terms of what you're talking about with Rick taking on too much. I mean, we've got two head coaches in this market who insist on calling plays and neither of them are good at it. So I just don't get that. So I guess the question for you on Rick and the play calling is, first thing, is there anybody there who can do it if it's not him? And two, if they go into next season and he is calling plays, what is the fan reaction to that going to be?
3: So to your first question, the answer is not really on this staff. And that's part of the problem. When I say he's taking on too much, I mean, he's really staffed this team. Forget that he's calling the plays. Like there's a lot of inexperienced coaches, especially on the offensive side of the ball, that really... Only he would have hired. I mean, his son gets a lot of the headlines in that because it's, I mean, let's just be blunt, it's nepotism. But even Thomas Brown, who's like the co offensive coordinator, even though he doesn't call plays and running backs coach, he's very green as well. Uh, Rick brought him over from Georgia. Hartley, even though tight ends have done well, he's also a special teams coach. He was, I believe, a GA at Georgia when Rick brought him over here. Like, these are not coaches that anyone else would have hired to those positions. So, On top of him taking on the play calling duties and, you know, all of that entails, there's not any other experience on this offensive staff other than Cyril, who I have a feeling might be gone because the offensive line stinks, and Dugans. But the rest of these coaches on the offensive side, I don't think anyone else in the country would have put them in those positions. So it's kind of difficult then when he, when it goes off the rails like this, and he's basically the only experienced coach on the staff, and now he's got to fix the offense and worry about the whole team. And then you look at the last game, like the play calling wasn't great or anything. The offense did move the ball okay, but so many penalties, drop passes, two fumbles on special teams. And you have to wonder, hey, maybe Rick was spending less time trying to fix the offense and more time coaching the team as a whole, maybe a lot of those mistakes don't happen. Those are like CEO level mistakes when the whole team is sloppy and he's busy trying to fix a broken offense instead of focusing on that. And that's what I mean by stretched way too thin. He needs to do his other job. There's been clock management issues in a lot of these games where he's trying to call a play in when he needs to be looking at the clock. So there's all those problems. And if he's calling the plays next year, obviously, coming into the year, it'll basically be like what happened to Rozier this year. Over the summer, everyone will convince themselves that it's going to get fixed and that the first <laughs> time it goes wrong, all hell's going to break
2: loose. Right. The, the when, when they go three and out against Florida in the opening game, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be raining down booze at Camping World Stadium. I, I guess my question would be, I'm always hesitant to criticize play calling because I don't know what the plays are that are being called. And so when you watch Miami offensively and you say that Miami has bad play calling or that their play calling isn't any good, what do you think could be done with this offense or what do you think is not being done with this offense that leads you to that conclusion?
3: So here's the thing. I'm in the same boat as you. I'm not a football expert like Rick knows way, 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 way more about calling plays than I do. And he actually used that line a couple of weeks ago when he, you know, said if I sat down with the football person and explained the, to them what we were doing, they would get it and they wouldn't ask these questions. And he might be right, so it's difficult for me to say. Well, we should be running this style or that style. I know they're not scoring points though, so stuff is <laughs> <laughs> not working, right? Like when you when you don't score more than when you don't score m- more than 14 points in three consecutive games, you can explain to me how your process is right all you want. It's just not working. Now, some of those you can clearly see there was a play against Georgia Tech where Perry threw it into coverage and Jeff Thomas couldn't make the catch. And then, you know, they show the replay and Brevin Jordan, they forgot to cover him and was running up the seam wide open. If he just throws it there, it's a touchdown. I'm sure Rick's looking at that and saying, if I had better quarterback play, that's a touchdown. Then you're not complaining. Sure. But when it's two quarterbacks and it's all year, then it becomes a coaching problem. And also, I meant I alluded to this earlier. the offensive line just stinks. And that makes any play calling look bad. So. There are things that can be fixed. But when people... So my whole thing with Rick is this. He's the one who built the staff. He chose to, like I said, fill it with guys that are, frankly, personally loyal to him. So this is going to be a very difficult staff for him to shake up when these are kind of almost like his... his, One's his actual son, but a lot of them are kind of his boys. But the one thing I've seen some people say is, Blake James needs to go to him and say, look, you can't call plays anymore. To me, if you have to do that to your head coach, you might as well just fire him. If you're literally saying my head coach cannot be trusted to make decisions, why is he the head coach anymore? So as far as I'm concerned, if he wants to call plays next year, let him. But he needs to be judged on the results. Like maybe he's right. Maybe next year the offense is great and we were all wrong and screaming for no reason. Or maybe he's completely wrong. He fires the whole staff. That actually works. Or maybe it doesn't. I don't really... To me that's almost like for us to debate and, and because we don't have anything better to do but for him he needs to fix the offense period however he does that's up to him i don't really believe anyone externally should be coming in saying forcing him to say this is how you fix it because if they're doing that then
4: why is he coaching the team the parallels again are amazing i mean you're describing the dolphin situation too it's like it's the same exact thing i mean you talk about the points that the Canes haven't scored over the past three games. The Dolphins have gone two games without an offensive touchdown, at least. And Whittingham knows I'm going to bring this one up. At least the Cades scored on their first drive uh this past week. Uh which, which <laughs> They went the 95 Dolphins. yards, didn't they? They went 95 yards, which the Dolphins. That was the
3: last seen. drive.
4: Well That was the last yeah. drive, right. But they did score on the yeah. first drive, didn't they not? I, th- I, thought they got, I thought they got a touchdown. On the no, they drive. did. They did. Okay. Okay, because the Dolphins have not scored a touchdown in their last 19 games under offensive genius Adam Gase and have not scored a point in their last 13. And again, the same applies here where both of these guys are offensive coaches and both of their offenses suck and both of their quarterback situations suck. And you're right, you have to be judged on the result. And when any coach starts bringing up the I need to talk to a football person about this mm-hmm. or the it's like it's that's Well, the, well, his,
2: well his was even more concerning because his, his deal was these plays have been working for 30 years. Uh, well, and that, that's and that's, and
4: that's terrifying
2: because you're basically saying I, I'm leaning on my offensive principles from 30 years ago
4: when the whole sport has completely changed in that intervening period it's the equivalent of the player saying to the reporter, well, I I need to talk to somebody who played the game, right? Like, so, so this is, this is the go-to when you're failing, like that, this is what happens. Like nobody's allowed to evaluate what you're doing. Even if the stats say something like I'm not saying that Mark Richt doesn't know more about play calling than ninety nine point nine 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 percent of America. Unfortunately, he doesn't seem to know more about play calling than the defensive coordinators he's going against on a regular basis. And that's all that matters. Like you judge you, you judge someone in the arena that they're in, not against the general population. Okay. And say, yes. Okay. If he goes over to the Spada, he might be able to find someone who is not as good at play calling as he is. Uh, But I only care what he does when he's going against so, so ACC competition. And that hasn't been good enough. So I I guess the larger point here is this, like what you're saying makes sense to me. Like, if you're going to say, don't call the plays, then what are you doing here at this stage? It's kind of like saying to Pat Riley, like, if you can't get the whale, like, what's your role in the organization, but where does the the program go from here? They just gave him an extension, right? I mean, so, I mean, they hyped the fact that he was bringing all the old players back, bringing the youth back, the turnover chain, all this. Like, is it even an option to fire Mark Rick to the next year or two? Because I don't think it is.
3: I mean, I, I have no idea on that front. Things tend to change quickly because I don't know if you've noticed our fans don't tend to be calm and rational. So, <laughs> <laughs> really, <laughs> so often, often you think, well, there's no way they can afford that, and that it gets so ugly that they almost have to. If you recall, when when Al Golden was finally fired, everyone remembers the fifty-eight to nothing. That kind of. Tipped it, But right after that game, Blake James came right out and said, there's no way we're firing him. And it got real ugly, real fast. And the next day, the basically the board of trustees went to him like and told him, look, we can't have this. You got to get rid of him. So I don't know that the, the problem with Rick is he already just last season accomplished more than Golden ever did and more than Randy Shannon ever did. So it's kind of. <laughs> This year is so disappointing for that reason. But also, this is bluntly put, one of the worst seasons the program has had really since they started winning championships. So I don't know how you square that circle because if you look at last year, it's like, you can't fire that guy. You look at this year and like he's got to go. My larger point is just, if you're having to dictate decisions, like on-field decisions to the head coach from the athletic department, you need a new head coach. Like no one's going to go to Nick Saban and tell him, you need to run this offense or do this. You just say,
2: he's the best coach, he'll figure it out. I guess maybe there's a difference between dictating and and consult, right? Because if Mark Richt can't separate himself from the situation and say, well, maybe I gave this up at Georgia for a reason. If he can't be self-aware enough to realize that maybe I shouldn't be doing this, then why wouldn't an AD go to him and say, well, are are you sure you want to do that? And and maybe, you know, and just sort of put the pressure on him to say, well, I'm not going to fire you if you don't hire someone, but just know that you're going to be under increased scrutiny if you don't.
3: The only problem with that is, let's say you, you do kind of pressure him or advise him or whatever, and he goes in and fires the staff, and the offense stinks next year. Whose fault is that? That's a good question. So that's why I, I just feel like I feel like you, just, you, you have to go to him and say, look, these are the expectations for on-field performance next year. Like, what happened this year was completely unacceptable. You're on notice. Like, this needs to improve significantly. Mm-hmm. And then let him figure out how to fix it. Cause he's got, like I said, play calling is symptomatic, but the, the fact that the staff is young and inexperienced is also a problem. So you could two birds with one stone that by letting go some of these people and bringing in an experienced coordinator. But like the special teams are terrible. The clock management is just mind numbingly bad. And I feel like a lot of that, if he does not recognize that he is basically spreading himself out to do too many jobs and he's not doing any of them well. If he can't independently arrive at that, I just don't know that he's ever going to actually fix this globally. It could get better if you have better play calling, but I don't know that. I think he needs to come to that realization
2: on his own, or we're just delaying the inevitable. Speaking of realizations, I hate coming to UCF's better than Miami, and that's uh that's something that's a huge bummer for Miami fans because we like to believe that you know we we have the we have the greatest program in the state and one of the greatest programs in the country, and that how can a mid major be better than us? But is better than Miami. It's something that I frankly have struggled to come to terms with as a Miami fan. But one of the things that we're going to talk about with Jeremy Taché, who's going to come on later on in the pod, is there are global reasons. You mentioned the sort of global picture of it. There are global reasons why UCF is better than Miami. They're recruiting speed. They've got sort of one of the more modern offenses in all of college football that's playing like the best offense in the offenses in the country do. And they've kind of been on the cutting edge, whereas Miami – has frankly, for fifteen years, been catching up right? They always got by on a talent advantage they haven't always gotten by on a scheme advantage or a facilities advantage or the other things that have now played a role in the in the progress of college football. Do you think that from a global point of view, Miami is being left behind?
3: No, you mentioned that they get by on a talent advantage they better be what else does miami have <laughs>
2: <laughs> like that,
3: that's the whole point that's why the program exists that if you can get a share of the local talent, you will always have better players than 95% of the teams you line up against. So they should just be exploiting. The problem is they're not exploiting that advantage. You play Duke and Duke looks better offensively. Like that's a problem. So no, they, I, don't, I definitely think, look, the, we've been spent a lot of this time talking about the offensive shortcomings. It definitely needs to get better, but the whole point of the Miami program and the approach should be, we're going to have better players. How do we exploit that? It should not be to try because you try to scheme around someone, or even try to, let's say we get a superstar quarterback and he's awesome, so the offense works for a couple of years. The way you build programs to actually sustain dominance is by building systems that allow talent to show out. That's like what that's what Alabama does, right? Like they their players, they who cares who comes in next? It doesn't matter almost, right? And th- that's what Miami used to be, and it was not. There was no like there was no rocket science behind it. Was just like we're gonna recruit better players and we're gonna put them in a position to succeed and they'll handle the rest. And that's clearly not happening right now. And like you said, it hasn't happened in 15 years.
4: Final one for you here. Um, Manny Diaz, because we've talked a lot about Mark Richt and it's pretty clear that Manny Diaz is going to get another opportunity here in the short term. Maybe it's not after this season, but maybe the season after that, if your U M Do you even consider the possibility of a preemptive strike or even a match? Essentially, he gets offered a head coaching job somewhere else and you promote him or again, or is that just not? Is that a bridge too far, considering what you've committed to Rick?
3: Yeah, I don't think I would do that. Look, you, get, you have to account for these things when you're a big program. Um, I keep going back to Alabama because they're the gold standard, but they lose their coordinators every year. It doesn't matter. So I don't think anyone on this staff is worth doing that for. I, I think the world of what Manny Diaz has done for the defense, it's carrying this program. I mean, as bad as it is, can you imagine if the defense wasn't good? But, um <laughs> But I I just don't, he's got no head coaching experience either. So you'd make him like a coach in waiting. And what happens if Rick ultimately does have to get fired? Now you're promoting someone from his staff. We've done that. (laughs) That was what Randy Shannon was. He was also considered one of the best. Yeah. Well, Larry Coker was not off a failed staff though. Butch left voluntarily to the NFL, but literally we fired Coker and promoted his defensive coordinator after the head coach failed and, that's kind of what we're looking at here. If in this context, it's not a situation where... The only way I would prove that is if like, Rick was solid and we knew everything was going the right direction and he's basically saying he's going to leave in a few years. Sure, because Rick is getting up there in age-wise as well. So then it would make sense. But in this situation where we're not even sure about the head coach, I would be very reluctant to pr- make promises to the defensive coordinator as painful as it would be if he left.
2: All right, Vishnu Parasuraman, you check him out, Sebastian's Pub on Twitter, at VRP2003. Appreciate the time, sir. Yep, thank you.
4: We'll get to the UCF portion of the podcast here in a second, but first I want to tell you about another great sponsor of the Five Reasons Sports Network, and that is BetDSI.com. You can check him out at BetDSI. On Twitter as well. And you've got to use the promo code Reason101. That's Reason, no S at the end, 101 to get up to $2,500 matched on your initial deposit. Chris, what's on there for the college games this weekend? Yeah, we're looking at Miami and UCF
2: this week here on the podcast. And actually, believe it or not, going into this week, Miami are favored in their game against Virginia Tech. They're four-and-a-half-point favorites away from home, which uh, frankly just sort of underscores what uh, how, how little is thought of, uh, of of Virginia Tech at the moment. And then you look at UCF, they're home with Cincinnati. They are seven-and-a-half-point favorites going into that game, which is probably among their lower spreads of the season both those both those teams heading down the final stretch of the college football season and frankly no dolphins game this weekend so maybe you can occupy your time by betting some nfl games betdsi.com is where you go use the promo code reason 101 to get your deposit matched up to
4: $2,500 while we've got you here I want to tell you about some great things that are going on in the five reason sports network the first we've got another new podcast it's called the chamber of podcast and it is hosted by chris chambers former dolphins receiver one of the top five receivers in dolphins history by receptions and yards and since he's retired he's been in the fitness field he actually owned a gym down here for a period of time he's hosting a fitness performance podcast with shay tab you're familiar with her work also a former dolphins cheerleader and zach duarte you can hear on 790 so they're putting out their first episode this week Check it out, all the same places that you find our podcast. Also, we are selling hats. Yes, we finally got some merchandise, so check that out. I've got them posted up on the 5 Reasons Sports Twitter feed. Just go there, get the hats. They'll be shipped to you within... Two or three days, so check out the five reasons hats, and also our patron feed. A lot of new content going up there, including commentaries from myself. Some short commentaries. You don't want to deal with me for an hour. You can have five <laughs> minutes. So the way that you get that is you've got to go to Podbean. That is our hosting app. Go to Podbean and just sign up there. It's three dollars a month. You get more than twelve bonus episodes per month. So check all up. Three, two, one. So check out all those things on the Five Reasons Sports Network. Join now on the Five
2: Reasons podcast by Jeremy Tachet, who is the co-host of Swings and Mishes, our baseball podcast here in the network, but more importantly for our purposes today, he is the host of War on I-4, which is our patron-only podcast on USF and UCF. Now, we envision that being a bit more of a rivalry at the start of the season, and both teams kind of keeping pace with each other. That has not happened. USF has lost three on the bounce, and now UCF continues to gain momentum to try and move up those college football playoff rankings, though, that is growing ever more unlikely but it, what we're doing today is comparing the University of Miami and their plight over the last four games and how it's possible that a program of their size and stature is at the place that it's at right now and UCF a relative newcomer onto the college football landscape when they moved I was just I was looking at their Wikipedia page before we started this when they moved into Conference USA in 2005 they were coming off of an 0-12 season with with George O'Leary as the head coach It wouldn't be the last time UCF went 0-12 <laughs> George O'Leary as head coach and so Jeremy wh- where I kind of want to start with you is this incredible run that UCF is on where they've won uh, am I correct in saying 23 in a row 22, 22 in, a row? in a row it'll, it'll be
0: 23 in a row. after this weekend
2: <laughs> <laughs> I admire the confidence but at the start of it Scott Frost is the head coach coming off a six and seven season could you ever anticipate not just obviously that they'd win twenty two in a row that's pretty easy to say that no, but everything that's happened since, which is UCF basically becoming one of the ten best five best offensive programs in all of the country and mowing teams over were there indications that Scott Frost could take this program to this point?
0: so I would say that indications sure was there an expectation absolutely not um UCF as as you noted just the year before Scott Frost took over in 2015 was 0 and 12 so 0 and 12 to Scott Frost then coming in instituting a brand new offense a brand new program an entire new coaching staff uh, going with the UCF fast and UCF fierce mantras in terms of branding um, but that's exactly what it's been on the offensive and the defensive side of the ball a, a turnover reliant defense and on offense. You'll often watch games, and and this is continued into the Josh Heupel era, but from the very beginning of the Scott Frost era, you would watch games and you would see this offense moving so fast that uh, if you watch the sidelines, they're not moving the chains fast enough. So really, if there were disputes on where the ball would be at, you know, at the end of a play, you couldn't figure it out. But the plays have all been so big that it hasn't even mattered. Um, Scott Frost came in. Um, took over with still Justin Holman at quarterback. And, and there's some kind of funny jokes amongst the uh, UCF fan base where the average college football fan can name that Blake Bortles was their quarterback a, a few years back. And then now Mackenzie Milton is their quarterback. But you're only a real fan if you stuck around during the <laughs> Justin Holman era. Uh, but Justin Holman, a guy that actually in 2014, led UCF to a share of their conference championship in the American um, and had a big arm and all of that. But he was the first quarterback.
4: For no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat
5: Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Back that Frost
0: was working with and relatively early on in his first season, you came to realize this guy's not exactly uh, the quarterback that Frost wants to, uh, let's say, just sink his money into. I mean, that's obviously not you know w- what's happening on on the college football landscape, uh, theoretically. But. Um, the the guy that was Frost's guy from the very beginning was Mackenzie Milton. Mackenzie Milton, who he had seen at a scouting camp for Oregon out of Hawaii back when Frost was the quarterback's coach and then the offensive coordinator with Oregon under Chip Kelly and then Mark Helfrich. Uh, and as soon as Frost got the job at UCF, he called Milton and, and brought him over. Uh, Milton had been committed to Hawaii and just was going to go there. Um, and then he came over and immediately Frost was talking about this it factor with Mackenzie Milton. And the first time I saw Mackenzie Milton throw, I thought Scott Frost was going to run the UCF program into the ground <laughs> because I thought Mackenzie Milton would never be able to turn into well, what he's turned into, but I I didn't even think he'd be an average college quarterback. He had this fun flair about him. It was this, you know, Johnny Manziel running around with the chicken with your head cut off type deal, but he had no arm strength and it looked like the football was too big for his hands. Like, like when you watch a 12 year old try to throw an NFL sized football, but he was right. Milton has that it factor. They went six and seven with a roster full of freshmen. Frost came in and played his guys right away. And then last year, every bounce went their way. I mean, when you really look at it, that was a team that dominated the majority of their games. But late in the year, you had really close games against USF, a talented program uh, with Quentin Flowers leading the way. That game could have gone either way on Black Friday last year. Then you beat Memphis in the conference championship in overtime Uh, again every bounce went their way that was necessary. And when you have guys like Shaquem Griffin on your defense, that's going to happen. And then they went out and even though Mackenzie Milton, I believe started two of 13 in the peach bowl and was just awful in the first half, they still kind of dominated Auburn and and took that one. So no, uh, sorry, long way to answer your question and say, no, I couldn't have envisioned an undefeated season last year. I would have thought there'd be a step forward considering they played so many freshmen in Frost's first season in 2016, but to see the program where it is and now under new new leadership from the coaching side still kicking is is really remarkable.
4: Well, Jeremy, this is what I want to get out here because the overall context of this pod is is how is UCF in this position? And, and look, I I don't think they're going to get in the playoff. They're 12th. Um, right. Obviously, the defense hasn't been very good. There weren't enough upsets in the top 10 last week to really make it interesting. But regardless, um, you know Miami's lost you know, four straight Mm. and appears to be headed nowhere. Their best win this year is a one point win against a terrible FSU team at home. And here UCF is. And what I'm trying to, to get at because it gets to where Miami is and where they can go is, is it as simple as saying that it was a system and a quarterback that have done all this, because if that's the case, then you've got to look, at Miami's situation, at Mark Richt, and say, okay, why can't we find a quarterback like that, and why right. can't we put in a system that fits his talent, or is UCF out recruiting Miami at other spots? In other words, it, it is because that strikes me as odd. If that's the case, and, and UCF's defense would not indicate that uh, that they are out recruiting, but it almost seems to me like UCF has passed Miami by basically being more creative at two spots coach and quarterback and everything else Miami can be better at. Mm -hmm. And UCF is still better. Is it as simple (laughs) as saying that,
0: you know, it's complicated there. Um, I would argue. So so both of the points that you made are correct. Uh, UCF has been more creative at the quarterback position over the last few years and, and blatantly more talented over the last few years at quarterback, um, even dating back to the Bortles days. but it is creativity at the head coach as well but but i would i would also make the argument that that UCF has sort of been a sleeping giant uh waiting to be awoken in this area for quite a while i mean if you look at it since 2004 Miami has one 10 win season UCF has five it'll be six if they win on saturday um UCF has even though there have been the 0 and 12 seasons sprinkled in UCF has had uh, flashes of success for the last 10, 15 years now. Um, and they're not necessarily out recruiting. They're just recruiting in a smart way. When Frost came in a couple of years ago, um, he basically said, we want to recruit the Orlando area. And rather than recruiting and trying to say, all right, let's go get these gigantic offensive linemen. Although obviously when you look compared to 2013, uh, and you look at the offensive line. Now uh, that fiesta bowl team compared to, to this group, You know, there's some big boys on the offensive and defensive line, but it was all about speed. That's all that UCF has recruited. They've said, okay, Adrian Killens, you're winning state championships in track. You're five foot eight. You look like you're 130 pounds soaking wet. We don't care. We're going to get you the ball in space. And now all of a sudden they're running them up the middle all the time. But between Adrian Killens and Otis Anderson and Dredrick Snelson down here from Flanagan High School, actually, Snelson, they're taking a bunch of guys that were two and three star recruits and saying, but you have speed and we'll be creative and we'll get you the ball in space. It's something that as I've watched nearly every Miami game over the last couple of years, I've been shocked that Miami hasn't found a way to get Jeff Thomas, the ball in space, right? Jeff Thomas is a remarkable athlete. As great as these UCF receivers are, I'd argue that Jeff Thomas would be the best receiver on UCF. If he was on UCF, he'd be averaging 150 yards a game pretty easily. And it does come down to creativity, but what's going to be interesting here going forward is just this past season, even as UCF lost their entire coaching staff, they brought in Randy Shannon as the defensive coordinator and Miami fans are familiar with him. Uh, as uh, I don't want to say poor of a job as he's done on defense because UCF is actually second in the country in turnover margin. Um, They are forcing turnovers, you know, when it counts Uh, he's recruited well, thus far in the Miami area. So he's doing the same thing. They're expanding from just recruiting Orlando to now they're coming down here to Miami and they've plucked a couple of defensive uh, commits from Northwestern high and central high Uh, I believe Demarius Good, who just decommitted from Miami, uh, was at UCF the last two weekends. So all of a sudden, UCF might be plucking some of the quote-unquote lower-end recruits from Miami, but turning them into players.
2: Yeah, and I think that's sort of an issue that I've been sort of quarreling with with Miami in kind of the last 10, 15 years is they've always had I want to say like a star rating advantage where Mm -hmm. because Miami is linked with these recruits because they're in Miami proper right like they're located in Miami Florida that they are going to naturally be rated higher just by virtue of pedigree and what this area has done to produce football players but have they actually been recruiting to something and have they actually Mm -hmm. been on the forefront of college football schematics right you've watched Oregon you've watched uh all the air raid teams like Oklahoma now what they do uh from a schematic point of view it's mainly it's mainly been teams in Texas and the Pacific Northwest that have been on the forefront of college football scheme and Miami has always said we're going to win with talent and we don't necessarily need to have the best scheme or play like everybody else in college football, and I think it's left them behind. They were yeah. so persistent in playing out of the I formation for the mid-2000s. Like They were still going to win the way that Ken Dorsey won games, and college football has changed too much, and I think that's something that, frankly, I'm envious of, as a Miami fan mm-hmm. of UCF, that Scott Frost is on the forefront of college football scheme, that Josh Heupel coming over from Missouri... Just by virtue of his by virtue of his pedigree, is on the forefront of college football scheme, and I think Mark Richt has been trying to get there. I just think it might be too late for him. It might be too late in the game for him to be a modern college football coach in the way that we define it now. And I think UCF, what they've done with tempo and with spread and with just not, it, it almost feels like a mentality of we are trying to score fifty every game and we're trying to fly down the field oh, yeah. and, and get players and get players to play with speed that they have this approach that they're recruiting to and it it all kind of works together. Whereas Miami, it feels like we get talent in and then we'll try and figure out what to do with that talent once they're here. Whereas UCF has a very defined identity and it's kind of on the cutting edge of what college football is today.
0: Right. And it's kind of funny that you say that uh, because in a couple of ways, number one, uh, UCF fans now, we've all gotten greedy, right? So mm-hmm. uh, UCF scores 35 this past weekend against Navy, but sort of, you know, uh, took the foot off the gas a little bit and started running the ball up the middle a bunch. Uh, and first of all, you're playing Navy on Veterans Day weekend. Uh, it's okay to take the foot off the gas a little <laughs> no, bit. No, it's I not. Think
2: it's that, never okay.
0: <laughs> well, uh, because now, we ha- now especially UCF has to play for, for style points. It's mm-hmm. all got to look sexy, right, if you're going to even get a shot um i understood that hybu was taking the foot off the gas but but what's funny is i think a lot of ucf fans have actually complained which is insane about hybu's uh offensive strategy because it's not creative enough and there's there's still the same tempo but there's a lot of running the ball up the middle i mean ucf they have the number 1 rushing offense in the country after you take away georgia tech Navy and army who were all triple option offenses. So UCF actually, where you would think it's this air raid attack, they're just running the ball right, right down your throat. They're, they're rushing for like 200 and se- I think it's 271 yards per game, um, which is a little different than how frost handled things last year, but you're right. They're recruiting to tempo and they're recruiting with speed. And the thing that is so great about that as a UCF fan is the frustration that all of us had, even when UCF won the Fiesta Bowl in 2013 with Blake Bortles at the helm, that offense had a tremendous amount of speed and talent, and yet every first and 10 was a run up the middle for two yards. It was it was exactly what, what UM fans are complaining about with Mark Rick with a, la- a lack of creativity. It's If you've listened to the War on I-4 podcast, what Tito Bonacci has complained about with USF, where it's a lack of creativity on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, not to not to give Tito you know flack here, but uh, <laughs> and, and as a UM and USF fan, he's got to be just having a miserable offensive season. But that's exactly what we're talking about. Miami, you're you're spot on when you say they've recruited the talent and then said our talent is going to just outplay you. Well, UCF now, as all of those recruits from the first year of Scott Frost are juniors, and the second year are, are sophomores they not only are more talented at all of the skill positions than probably, I would argue, at the skill positions when you look at wide receiver, running back, even the defensive backs, they're as talented as as probably all but 10 to 12 teams in the country, maybe, if that many, but then they're also creative in their approach and they're out coaching you. It's sort of like what UCF is doing in this sort of, Scheme thing is exactly what you talk about. Uh, You said in Texas and the Pacific North Northwest. How about someone that's been in both? It's Mike Leach, who's taken the lesser talented guys and said, "We're going to throw the ball a hundred times a game, and so we're just going to score points on you."
4: So the other the other part of this uh, that's interesting to me is that you have the coaching change, and you've addressed it a little bit with Frost leaving and and then going to hypo But you know, one of the things that's been interesting to me about this team this year is that at least offensively, they haven't seemed to lose. All that much, and we hear so much about you know, coach comes in and needs his own players and needs his own system and all that. How have they been able to make the transition in that regard, in your opinion, so smooth? Because I'm I'm kind of tired of hearing excuses about Miami sports teams and new hmm. coach comes in and needs his own guys, and then we see UCF and it's just okay, we're just going to continue to score forty points a game. Why has that
0: worked? I think when you look at the two head coaches, um, Scott Frost played college quarterback at a very high level. Josh Heupel played college quarterback at a very high level. Ironically, Frost and Heupel were, were sort of the same trajectory just a couple of years apart, uh, you know, in terms of Heisman finalists and, you know, national championships in the late 90s and early 2000s at two historic programs. They're very similar guys um, in terms of leadership style. I think Frost was a little more fiery. Uh, Frost, yeah, he had, just the way Frost carried himself was pretty cool. Uh, he- Heupel's kind of... Uh, Uh, a a cool intellect, we'll say, is the way I'll try to phrase that instead. But Mackenzie Milton has been what's carried that over. Um, Mackenzie Milton is a cool customer. Uh, He doesn't seem to get very rattled regardless of the situation. Um, And so where early in the year when the offensive line play was really strong, uh, it looked like there was going to be no stopping this offense. But what's great about Milton is I, I would argue that his style of play where a lot of people early in his career. And I, I just did the same thing compared him to Johnny Manziel. It's really closer to in style. And I'm not saying he's going to be this at the next level, but it's similar to Baker Mayfield where he has the athletic ability to scramble around and make something happen, but he's absolutely a pass first quarterback uh, when there are options for him. So they give him his two, three options. And then from there he can make something happen And you got to think about it. This offense is full of guys that all came in together and are now on their third year together with a similar offense. Again, like you said, it's a new head coach. It's a brand new coaching staff completely. Frost took everyone with him to Nebraska. And the fact that these kids have carried over this winning streak with a target on their backs with everyone in the nation besides UCF fans wanting them to lose I don't think anybody roots for UCF outside of UCF fans at this point because we've been obnoxious as hell we all know it uh and and this team even with all of that has maintained this level of stability and and a a cool calm collected type of atmosphere around them and I really do think that comes down to Mackenzie Milton which going back to what Chris said before uh, makes it interesting going forward, right? Because maybe this is just a quarterback and a system, right? Maybe this is mm-hmm. just the one quarterback. And, and I hope that's not the case. I, we watched Daryl Mack go out um, and, and beat down ECU. But again, that was ECU now road game at night, your first start. Uh, everybody expected Mackenzie Milton to play. And Daryl Mack went out there and was had success. I believe he ran for over a hundred yards in that game, but didn't, you know, he's not Mackenzie Milton. And we can't expect the next guy to be Mackenzie Milton. So what happens next? You know, does Mackenzie Milton stick around for next year? And does this undefeated streak just continue into oblivion? Or, you know, or or does this come to an end once he leaves? And and that will be the interesting thing to see. I have to imagine. Uh, that UCF has basically turned themselves into, at, at the very least, Boise State.
2: Which is sort of perennial, you know, uh, m- mid-major that is always going to win 10, 11 games a season. Uh, right. I-, I guess I guess we have to close on the question that has surrounded UCF for the last year and a half, which is, obviously, you want that shot at the college football playoff. How frustrating is it that it doesn't seem like no matter what you do, you're going to get that shot? And what do you think it would look like if they did get in? <sighs>
0: So this is a complicated and loaded question this year specifically, right? Because if UCF got in, they'd be the four and they'd play Alabama <laughs> and Alabama <laughs> is the world beater, right? I mean, Alabama is arguably when this is all said and done, they might end up being the best college football team of all time. And I, you know, Miami fans are not going to be happy to hear that. Right. But this, this, this team with two Tagovailoa at quarterback, it, it seems unbeatable so that's what makes this a loaded question, right? Because you want to get in, but you don't want to get in and they get beat by thirty by Bama, right? Because then that that ruins everything. Um, to me, the the place where where I'm frustrated for these kids is they've won twenty two straight games. Uh, they've beaten some good teams along the way. They beat down Auburn. They beat a Memphis team that you know Anthony Miller was their star receiver. He's he's you know receiving for a hundred yards and a touchdown last week in the NFL. Uh, You beat USF this year. You beat Pitt, who controls their own destiny in the ACC Coastal. You beat them by 30. Um, You've won 22 in a row, and yet the entire conversation does come down to this of should they be in the playoff. Right now, um, if the rankings were what I thought was fair, UCF would probably be ranked sixth. Um, I I think that feels right. Um, I I don't understand how Ohio State can lose to Purdue by 30 and we just don't care, how when they give up 31 points to Nebraska and Oregon State, their defense is great, but UCF gives up 40 to Temple and their defense is the worst in the country. Uh, Oklahoma can give up 50 points a game. It's irrelevant. It's fun. It's a shootout. It's the Big 12, but in the American, that's sloppy football. Um, There's just a lot of double standards toward UCF. And it's understandable because the American conference doesn't have this tradition, right? UCF's only been a division one program since 1996. I'm 23 years old and I'm older than UCF's D one football program. I mean, that shows that they're new and every team that they're playing against is new. And so we're not going to have the same level of respect there. But when you have a team that other than triple option teams is number one in rushing offense, when they're number eight in the country in scoring offense. They're beating teams by 23 points per game. Uh, they've beaten four teams with a 500 record or better, which was that ridiculous thing that all of a sudden became a requirement by the college football playoff the first week of the rankings. Oh, well, you haven't beat anybody over 500. Well, I haven't heard that requirement before. And now we have three wins over te- with teams over 500. Is that going to matter? Oh, no, no, no. Your defense gave up 40 to Temple well that temple team that just put up 60 against Houston who was ranked 17 in the AP before like you, you see what i'm saying there's these constant um uh misconceptions about this team and 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 and, and just kind
2: of these subjective requirements placed upon them that were not there right. before by the committee
0: exactly and there's there's these expectations from fan bases and from the committee that have been frustrating uh and that said i, I still think that you know they should be ranked ahead of you know, the Oklahoma and the Ohio States of the world. And if those teams win their conference, then that's fine. I get it. I get why UCF wouldn't be in, in the college football playoff. Like those wins would be better. Um, and, and I can understand how one slip up in a bigger conference uh, might mean that, you know what, everybody can lose a game. Well, except UCF. Uh, everybody can lose a game on any given day. Uh, but when you've won 22 in a row, it's pretty impressive. And and like I said, it's, it's the same team. It's all the same skill players, you know, just one quick point and then I'll, I'll wrap it up with you guys. But one thing that's been thrown out there a lot over the last few weeks is the fact that UCF lost NFL talent. Uh, they lost Traquan Smith, who's catching touchdowns with the saints. They lost Jordan Akins. Who's who's playing tight end with the Houston Texans. They lost Shaquem Griffin on the defense. They lost Mike Hughes, who was a first round pick on defense. Uh, Jamias Pittman's actually played some defensive tackle for for the Dolphins this year. You know, they lost all this NFL talent. When has that been a problem for any other school? Like, why is that a requirement? Right. It, maybe UCF is just establishing themselves as a talented program that can produce multiple years of NFL talent in a row. They had the third overall pick in 2013. You know, there's there's all, Rashad Perriman's back out catching passes somehow. I don't understand how. Cause he has rocks for hand, uh, bricks for hands, but he's catching passes for, for Cleveland. I love,
2: I love how Blake Bortles went from Blake Bortles to the third pick in the draft. So we don't have to mention him by name that he's actually <laughs> Blake Bortles. One
0: of, one, of my friends, <laughs> one of my friends is planning on bringing a sign to game day this weekend that says, hi, I'm direct Blake Bortles. And I played for UCF and hi, I'm cable Blake Bortles. I played for- <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dimitri. It's it's a good one, man. But all of that said, um, you know, th- like I just said, there, there's these false equivalencies in the, in these ridiculous expectations. And yet I am petrified of Cincinnati this weekend. Uh, I'm petrified. <laughs> That's fandom. That's fandom, man. Petrified. That's what it is. Hey, look, they're they're 11th in the country uh, in, in rushing defense. They're 7th in points per game allowed. Uh, UCF is number one in rushing offense and 8th in points per game. That's what it's going to come down to, right? So what that means is it comes down to Mackenzie Milton. Can he make the plays that are necessary? Can this be his... You know, he's not really in the Heisman conversation, although he should be. Hashtag Money Milton for Heisman. Uh, but this could be his, his uh, we'll call it his group of five Heisman moment. You know, can he step up? with the lights on at night at home with game day on campus and make the plays that are necessary against a defense. that has been great all year long.
4: You're going to filibuster here for the next 30 minutes. Not, not allow us to talk anymore. Um. So I got one more for you. <laughs> I got one more for you, Jeremy. Uh, yeah. So the, the idea of game day being there mm-hmm. uh, this weekend. So, so give me three for people who are not familiar with the UCF campus. Uh, give me three things, three things quickly that game day should check out while they're, while they're there in Orlando.
0: Oh gosh. Okay. So, uh, the first thing that immediately comes to my mind is food because that's who I am. Uh, there, there's, there's a, there's a pizza restaurant just off campus, or it's like across the street from where campus technically ends. It's called lazy moon. Uh, I'm hoping that that is what they give all of the guys on set, uh, as the food for, for game day. It is pizza. Each slice is like the size of your face. And it's like, two dollars and it's just it's the best Uh, lazy moon is fantastic just off campus Um, I am excited about where they've set up on campus Um, if you look at like the map of where game day is going to be set up you'll see it stretches across memory mall Uh, memory mall is basically just from the student union to where the basketball arena is the CFE arena it's a gigantic long stretch of grass where all of tailgating has always taken place Obviously, that's not how they're going to have it set up this weekend. Um, although, I guess they can reopen that for tailgating since the game's not till eight. Uh, but what's great about that is it's really going to show off how beautiful the UCF campus is, uh, which I'm excited about. You know, w- when I was a-, a kid in high school, I-, I didn't, UCF was not on my radar. UCF was not the school I was going to go to. And I went there just to check it out um, and fell in love with it. And even then still didn't think I was going there. And I'm really excited as someone that takes so much pride in the university to see it shown off and the way it's going to be shown off because they're going to show off the academic side of things as well, including the engineering program and all of that. Um, And then one more thing just in terms of UCF and what they should check out. I mean, I guess... Really, instead of saying something they should check out, I just think something that should be focused on is that this isn't just the football program. Uh, It's the entire athletic program. And I just have to give a shout out to Danny White, the athletic director, who has completely reinvigorated this program. I mean, obviously, UCF had the ability, being in Orlando, to be an up-and-comer, to be, you know, I wouldn't call it a powerhouse, but to be consistent at all levels. And right now, obviously, Basketball team just lost to FAU. That's a disappointment, but there's hype around that team. You know, volleyball's winning conference championships, golf's winning cha- conference championships, soccer's winning conference championships. The women's basketball team is dominant. The softball team is dominant. The, the baseball team's top twenty-five. They've completely turned this into a consistent from top to bottom great athletic program. And, and I'm I hope that gets uh, a little bit of love besides just football. On, on Saturday.
2: All right, Jeremy Tache Again, check him out on the Swings and Missions Podcast on Baseball War on I-4 on our patron feed, which is patron.podbean.com/slash five reason sports. Appreciate the time, Jeremy. Thanks for doing it.
0: Thanks, guys. Go nights. Thank you for listening to the Five Reason
4: Podcast.
1: Thank you so much.